Hello, Tom. Hello, Barney. What a wonderful background sound. We've got two things going on here. Mm-hmm. For the first time in recording history, you are getting me using my Yeti Blue. Ooh, moving on up, moving on up. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I've got the door open, Ooh. which will give you bird song. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. We may get some cars driving by yeah. because it's the modern world, so let me know if... Um, Believe me, it is far quieter and uh, more deliciously delicate than okay. anything I could have given you in San Jose, which would have been ambulances, ambulances, and yeah. a wide variety of cement trucks. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So if I'm, if I'm loud enough, I hope, that, I hope that's all right. Hmm. Okay, if that's going to be the loudness of the cars, perhaps close the window. I've had okay. the bird song initially, but that that kind of drowns out everything. If I could tastefully, you know, um, open the door later when it, when when it's time to go. I don't Amen. Know. I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> um, so is that all right level wise? Yeah. You? No, it's perfect. It's perfect. You you sound okay. much crisper than you've ever sounded previously in our recording. So I'm you going to utilize this so. as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> You'd hope so after paying. Paying for that. I'm, I like it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. I've gone through maybe three or four generations of Yeti, and the middle generations, when they dropped the price, the quality just fell out from underneath them. So mm. I have a box of I have a box of two Yetis, and my original Yeti, I think I gave to someone. Uh, but yeah, it was a mic that, when it first came out, really crisp, dropped off in quality, all kinds of static and other horrible stuff. But you've obviously purchased well, because your Yeti is uh, very, very crisp. Wonderful. Good, good, good. Well, I think this is my podcast, so I probably should give an introduction, and then we can get recording. (laughs) Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. If I seem a little bit more, I don't know, baseful, maybe a little bit more whimsical, it is because it is 6am here, and these are the restrictions one needs to meet in order to have the luxury of chatting with Barney Dicker these days. Barney, it's a pleasure as always to have the chance to chat with you. Uh, Thanks for getting up, yeah. Nice and nice and early for you. I'm I'm luxuriating on fr- in Friday afternoon. Believe me, believe me. Unfortunately, my Friday afternoon looks rather brutal. They had told me I could take it, it, the two formerly religious days off, but unfortunately, the nature of my work means that I'll be probably working about the same time your time. Anyway, I have two mm. large cups of caffeine in front of me, and a number of topics to discuss with you. Yeah. Yep. I wanted to start by saying this has been another five months of, of <laughs> not having to the opportunity to chat with you. And I think yep. actually in our podcasting relationship, this has probably been the most interesting five months Ooh. because I've, I've had so many questions, so yeah. many questions through the months. I thought I probably could frame them to you either in audio or email, but I decided somewhere through this thing, probably about two months ago, there was far more interesting for me to create a counter narrative to your podcast or more importantly, create a narrative to the bits that I found missing in your podcast, mm-hmm. waiting mm-hmm. for some contradiction in time where you corrected me. And one of the things that I found most interesting through this period of time is the uh, League of Eternal dot, dot, dot. Guardians, um, yeah. Well, Guardians in your case. I probably about two months ago realized that I needed to create a, a secondary game or a game based on what I thought League of Eternal Guardians was based on. <laughs> Just to see whenever you would actually correct me in the podcast and if I could make any sense out of what was going on here. Okay. And it only really struck me when I moved about a month ago into this house exactly the direction that I needed this game to take, in particular because of the kind of spindly imagery that I was consuming associated with uh, with your particular game. And when we moved into this house, the refrigerator didn't work. 
And it was something that struck me that it worked enough to appear like it was a refrigerator, but then you just <laughs> put stuff in and you'd realize, oh, wait, it's like 42 degrees Celsius, oh, sorry, 42 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is about seven or eight degrees Celsius in this thing. We couldn't get it any cooler. So we had this amazing effect of everything that we put in started to deteriorate in rather interesting and fascinating ways. Okay. And I thought, this is the game. This is the game. So I came up with, <laughs> and this is why when you posted about food poisoning a day early, I was like, no, he's beaten me <laughs> to it. Anyway, I created this game called The League of Eternal Sandwiches. Okay. And the idea of The League of Eternal Sandwiches, it's a grid-based game, uh, is that you first roll up what kind of sandwich you're having. You roll up the ingredients of said sandwich. And then basically it's a bacterial land grab with on, with the sandwich itself as the various bacteria and stuff. And there's, there are a number of dimensions to this game. One of my favorite dimensions to it is whether or not you want to kill the consumer of the sandwich or you just want to put them off eating the sandwich sufficiently that you become an eternal sandwich. You see, the aim is to become an I eternal see. sandwich. I see. So there are various stratagems and I expanded it actually when I realized obviously I was missing some major demographics in the US. So I included hamburgers and what they call chicken sandwiches in this country as well. I mm -hmm. haven't moved it to fish tacos yet. That okay. The rules would need to change for that. But the idea is basically that you play the spread out different diversity of yeah. uh, sandwich-related bacteria. Yeah. Uh, and the size of the bites is really critical. So part of the thing early on is you, you roll for the size of the bites with a view that the maybe if you've ever eaten something which isn't quite right. Yeah. The first reaction is to share it with someone else <laughs> to show them how not quite right it is. So there are these kind of elements as well. Like, is it a shared sandwich? Are you just looking to kill the sandwich eater quickly? Are you looking yeah. just to put the sandwich eater off sufficiently that they throw the sandwich away, which still makes you an eternal sandwich, might I add. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, this is the League of Eternal Sandwiches. I would like to put it out. Unfortunately, your listeners aren't listening into this, but I think this is actually a, a practical... Anyway... Here's what's fascinating. Well, I, I'll, I'll do my best to get my listeners to, to listen to this as well. And I mean, there's so much, there's so much potential there. Mm. Um, uh, you know, in between, in between death and annoyance, maybe you've got all kinds of oh, um, believe me. evolutionary believe mutations. Me. Believe me. So yes, um, that is certainly a, a secondary aim of, of the game as mm -hmm. well. But I wanted to point out something really interesting, which I think illustrates the nature of my problem over the past five yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your description of your league and my description of the League of Eternal Sandwiches, there's nothing that I've heard so far to correct yeah. any... I mean, for folks <laughs> listening in, is the intention just to be as obtuse as possible with the view that this is a, a secret game that is going to be released at some stage of the future? I also understand that there is a sister podcast of yours that actually is probably the primary source to find information about this game, which I've neatly avoided while I can continue thinking about my poisoning sandwiches game. Okay. But I guess for folks listening in, this is yeah. my podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. Very little likelihood of any of your listeners actually listening to this podcast. Let's talk a little bit about what the background <laughs> for your league is. Yeah. And maybe why, I don't know, the, the secrecy and just the general... And in communicating yeah. with you initially... I couldn't really gather whether the secrecy was intentional or whether, particularly when I used the term boys club to describe <laughs> the nature of the secrecy. So, Barney, <clears throat> yeah. the forum is yours. Okay. So this is our little boys club now, isn't it? Okay. So the League of Eternal Guardians, this is the backstory to it. I got into a, I, well, I've, I've been having a long running chat with another podcaster called Andy Goodman, mm. who has 
the Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks mm-hmm. podcast, and now Grizzly Peaks Radio, where he puts actual plays up. And we've been having this long debate about prep, no prep, uh, specifically in, in relation to Call of Cthulhu and those kinds of investigative horror type of games. And we hatched this idea that we wanted to run some improvised investigations. And we called that the Eldritch Organ. And we did host those discussions on his expedition to the Grizzly Peaks. So before Christmas, so I think December-ish, it probably started November, December, um, a number of his, a number of his, uh, episodes are Eldritch Organ themed. Um, and at one particular point, he said that he likes naive investigators who are exposed to this horrific underbelly of reality, uh, you know, where you find Cthulhu and co. Um, and I said, I like Van Helsing's. I like knowledgeable, knowing investigators who know that something bad is, is going on. Because in my mind, it doesn't, it doesn't alter, doesn't really alter anything. It just, uh, sets the bar a little bit higher for the type of challenge or the type of ingenuity that the players and the game master are bringing to the game. Um, and I got, um, we decided to, to run these games, these improvised investigation games or these improvised eldritch games, whatever you want to call them, Cthulhu games. And I, I had an old rule system half finished and I started thinking, hmm, I think it might suit, it might suit these games very well because I'd just done a, a kind of superhero redraft of it. And, and I realized that, of course, that, if you like, is, is not a million miles away from a Van Helsing type of character, a monster hunter. So I, converted the rules again to fit uh the eldritch organ idea and just about managed to get them ready for the for the time of our games and it it just really fitted and kind of finished the system for me and fleshed itself out very rapidly and the group of players that Andy and I um have involved in the eldritch organ games have all really responded well to it and that was really inspiring and i wasn't entirely expecting that so it was a nice surprise so many parts to this thing so (laughs) in terms of yeah i mean to have a group that is sympathetic to an not even untested partially written rule system being used i guess cthulhu and a lot of background to cthulhu leads into a number of points of my interest but i'm not very very well read in the the source material, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I do understand the concept of war-related terror, obviously, you know, Tolkien et al., and its impact on literature and just general perspective. Mm -hmm. Your setting, or at least what was posted briefly yesterday, again, I'm clawing Mm -hmm. at small elements that I have actually been Mm -hmm. exposed to, Mm -hmm. indicates that you were going for a much older setting. Mm-hmm. Is that a is that part uh, of the game, or is that something where you've tweaked it in that direction and just are looking forward to testing that out? That's a that's a wonderful question. 
I mean, just to say, the rules are super minimalist. They, in total, like, like the core rules are, are two pages or something. So it's really, really boiled down. So the, the kind of tweaking that's been, that's taken place through playtesting has been very small. And, and of course, that's very, that always, feels very significant when you're the designer you know the closer you get to it feeling fully rounded and finished you know it's these at the end it's these tiny little increments and things just slot into place so and and at the same time the changes would seem almost cosmetic perhaps to someone else um so that's that's happened um the the other premise so, so the actual premise for the league of eternal guardians the eternal guardians are basically immortal you you do die but you can get reanimated or reincarnated and maybe i can talk a bit about that as a as a game principle later on but the the eternal guardians exist to basically firefight the these constant non-linear attacks against reality by these cosmic horrors so the the league um are able to teleport and transport their guardians to any time or space mm. and and that's the way the adventures work and there you there's no need to worry about anomalies and so on because they just add to the fun of it all mm. and so the fact that i'm setting this this new adventure in um, Constantinople in 541 AD or whatever it is is totally within keeping of the system. You can be a guardian from any time, any place, and the the way in, if you like, is that your character will have survived some encounter with mm. these evil creatures and survived almost by chance or fluke or some some way and that that generates some a nice premise upon which to to hang your character and define your character and that is how they belong within the league even if they're being teleported uh, backwards forwards left and right through time and space so you're still basing it on i mean again not totally familiar aside from the voluminous amount of kind of Cthulhu related role playing works, which I think you there's some basis on that too, right? In terms of you you are relying on players that have utilized that style and perspective previously, and that is really intertwined with components of the game, if not every aspect of it, right? Um, yes, yes. Um but I'm I'm no um I'm no massive Cthulhu aficionado. I'm no orthodox you know, I'm not mm. orthodox, and I, and I personally are your cohorts though. Um, some, I mean, Andy's Andy likes it very, very much, and mm. there might be some other players who are who are into it too. But I don't, I don't think any nobody's exclusively so. Mm. And I mean, for me, there are questions over what is the difference between, uh, if you like, ordinary supernatural horror mm. and. Lovecraftian cosmic horror. To me, they are, it's all, it's all a realm of, of 
supernatural horror if if such things can exist or we imagine that they can exist then then of course you're going to have different types of monsters at different scales in the universe because we're all in the universe so it's not it's not intended to it's not intended to cramp the style of call of cthulhu i mean it never will that's a that's that's a you know that's a massive thing and it's not and neither is it the first other lovecraftian type of horror and what i wanted to do as well was was kind of meld it with with a kind of michael moorcock inflection and and have these because you know have these kind of uh you know he's got eternal champions and i wanted to have eternal guardians Mm. so do they show up to brexit or the trump campaign they could go anywhere, Tom. Mm. They could even they could even use toxic sandwiches. Very good. Yeah, both applicable. Both applicable yeah. to Brexit and the Trump campaign. I like Absolutely. the I like the segue. So I didn't necessarily want to talk too heavily about like the deeper details of the game until it was something that was more available. I guess that's my terminology uh-huh, uh-huh, to this. Uh-huh. Because I think uh-huh. what what I'm trying to illustrate here is the Almost a responsibility, not necessarily to be repetitive in a podcast, but just to give sufficient details to kind of carry it through. (laughs) And I think um, certainly, I mean, this is a fascinating area and one that I'd like to talk to you about with with more detail once I've... uh, I've always... The the whole nature of uh, vast war and its effect on the human psyche, particularly with regards to creating the supernatural, is something that I find really fascinating. Because yeah. I think the impact of these, and I'm wondering actually what the contemporary conflicts might fuel in the future associated with what, you know, what an Afghanistan Cthulhu would look like or, mm-hmm. you know, these, these kind of things. Because I think certainly both the first and the second world war punctuated huge, creative, disturbing, gothic horror elements to it, of which I certainly, you know, put Cthulhu, uh, as part of that. The second world war and its impact particularly on vast aspects of American culture in a very curious kind of gothic horror fashion. I, I find fascinating as well. I mean, I think I think now that it, it's really interesting that we now have these phrases like weird war or mm, mm, weird west. Definitely. You know, it, it plays with the alliteration of, of, you know, in those titles, but also this alternative, these alternative histories. So um, that's definitely, that's definitely there. I subscribe to a weird, in fact, they contacted me first, but I subscribe to a weird World War II podcast that explores all these weird World War II games that have come out. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, because I've realized through that, and in part because of my work on Sea Line as well, that I'm a World War II purist. I think the more that you learn about World War II, the less you know about World War II, really fundamentally. Okay. So I think mm-hmm. it is fascinating that these these games are coming out now and very, I mean, in terms of World War II specifically, are very well-defined, but no one has really bridged, you know, Vietnam yet. No one's really looking into, like, what would weird world mm-hmm. uh, Afghanistan look like? And I mm-hmm. think one of the fascinating things is just, manip- so in order to get to Lovecraft with a little bit of green stuff, which is the putty that you apply to miniatures, you don't need to do really that much. And my friend mm-hmm. in, in England, Rochi Rochford, mm-hmm. Took mm-hmm. some Imperial Guard Steel Legion, which are kind of quintessentially on the boundaries of both World War One and World War Two. Applied a bit of putty, and they looked Lovecraftian perfectly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, they're, I great. Think they're great. They're yeah. great. It fascinates me 
what like the steps that are changed in various directions. But you're doing that for more than just the, the traditional Cthulhu timeframes. So I think it's fascinating, particularly Constantinople at the period of time that you picked yeah. in terms of flux and, you know, just it's interesting that you could take history and then frame it with something curious and, and cosmic that needs to be solved. So, yes, you, you have sent me off in a variety of different directions, which makes me think we probably need to have this conversation in six months' time when well, the rules are available in some well, I, physical form. I tell you I tell you what, Tom, then, it, you know, to kind of segue to whatever's coming, whatever question is coming next, you know, your point about maybe repeating, repeating your project, one's projects, and the necessity for that and that certain things aren't clear in, in, you know, in what I present. I mean, I remember putting the same kind of question to you um, when you came onto my podcast, because it's not always clear to me what exactly Believe the state me. of your projects are. And so wh what all of this points to is just how wonderful it is to have, you know, people that you can converse with Certainly. to who, who will, who will ask you those questions and, um, and you can, yeah, and you can, you can continue, you can have that ongoing debate. It's, it's totally essential. And that's what's been great about kind of developing this with, with Andy as well for, mm. for his, you know, his, he's got his interests and his version. And you've known Andy forever, right? You've, uh, that wasn't clear. No, either, no, or... no, 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 uh, no, we've, we've only quite, you know, we've only since both starting podcasts on Anchor okay, interesting. Uh, become friends. But the, the, the touch point, really, for both of us with the Eldritch Organ was that we came up with a list of, I think now we're at something like 11, 12 or 13, a mm. list of different things that we ask players in a game mm. to um, contribute, like a setting, a time period, an NPC, um, an occult item, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And then the GM randomly rolls those. Mm. And that is wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. So uh, a little while ago, we had a game that was set in the medieval. So this was the League of Eternal Guardians. Uh, they went to uh, medieval Paris and there was a 1960s telephone box as an object somewhere. Mm. And so, so just the fun of, of thinking how to sling those things together. And I literally, I literally randomly generated those elements as we started playing. Mm. And we got the, of the, of the 12 or 13, let's say there were, um, I think we did something like we got through something like eight in the first session, mm. and then in second session we did the we did the last the last four or something like that. So as a as a um, catalyzer for these games and to generate a certain kind of group dynamic, that that's that's the specific thing that Eldritch Organ uh, has has is is offering if you like that we're mm. that we've been working on and and it's been a really a lot of fun that to do that interesting so you give the player something familiar which you then as the gm have some additional knowledge of that the player didn't have when they first created it and then well, they find uh, it in the adventure as a kind of point of a touchstone of familiarity through the adventure well, well, of course, because the players have contributed all of these elements, what's interesting is that they then recognize 
or hopefully recognize their own elements as they emerge in the game. But surprisingly, that doesn't always happen, mm. um, especially if you kind of defamiliarize it as you describe it or the penny drops much later. And that, I think, has an interesting frisson between the player and the character and them having hunches about the nature of the mystery taking place. I think the mind automatically starts to do things. For, so, for example, when the telephone box pops up, the player that suggested the telephone box knows knows something of the character or quality of that phone box because they suggested it. But they think they know because basically the GM's already messed with them in some regard, which they haven't specified specifically, but they obviously have to have an interaction with the thing to get to realize, ah, this isn't quite what I thought it was, right? Well, well, that that is true. However, however, I've stayed pretty close to whatever was stated. So for Uh example, telephone box, (laughs) this telephone box contained, um, you know, t- uh, telephone numbers, sex lines to call. Mm. Mm. Um, but Throughout when- time or just for a specific time? Well, that doesn't, that's the kind of detail it doesn't matter, Tom, for all oh, time. Oh, believe me. Time. Sex lines for all time? Sex lines for all time. You heard it here first. You've named the um, podcast, buddy. Very good. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you ring those numbers, uh, it summons, it summons a mythos deity. Mm. And, and so, so that is, that's, that was the object. That was the occult object, if uh-huh. you like. Um, so, so of course, of course you can, you can finesse things a little bit, but because you're combining so many different elements, there's not actually that much need to split things up and people naturally forget. And of course, this is part of the experiment. It's fun when mm. they, when they have a hunch because then they can say, no, 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 don't go in the phone box or, Oh, uh, okay. Let's go and see what's in, you know, that, that generates another dimension to it. Like I say, this kind of frisson between the player and their, and their character or the game world and the table. Barney, you've offered many possibilities, but I did want to start to explore yeah. tone with you. Yes. Because I also find this fascinating and shout outs to Matthew Gibson because a lot of this seems to, seems to hark, harken, harken back to our discussion on the N-word here, the terrible N-word being narrative, specifically. Talk a little bit about your... Because I think as a creator of rules, playing those rules with people, you have a different experience, particularly around setting of tone, than, for example, when I, uh, you know, ripped off alluvial planes and uh, did a (laughs) a single day of disaster around it. Have others others done that as well? Just a sideline question. No, you're still, you're still, you're still the people? Brady champion. People, yeah. ah, yeah. I've got about two hours left to get you the details of fighting uh, monstrous creatures, and mm-hmm. it's it's still very much on the. I, in fact, I was going to complete it last night, but I had a rather bad migraine. Um, it's on that kind of nearly ready to get to you. Fabulous. So, um, with the view that actually it's about more creating a sense of, even though this creature is huge, there are still weak points that we need to exploit through our battling techniques mm-hmm. to get to it. Anyway. Let's return to this notion of tone yeah. here. When you create a rule system, you have an intimacy with it, specifically where you don't have to write stuff down necessarily, and you can kind of create the tone in the interaction. Mm-hmm. But as you're now talking about, I mean, some of these games that you're talking about are going to be part of Kickstarter. Some of them are going to be part of additional things on Kickstarter. 
in terms of the movement, which obviously I'm going through as well, um, in the movement towards commercialization in some regard of these mm-hmm. ideas, how, how do you feel responsible to pass on tone when you aren't intimately connected with the playing of your rule systems? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So we, so we're connecting, we're connecting this a little bit to questions of narrative, um, as well. And, evoking evoking a tone for, to, to encourage people to pick it up right or to for, to make it appeal amen so just as a kind of opening gambit i would say that tone tone can be diametrically opposed to narrative that would be my opening proposition i don't mean it as a hard and fast thing but it could it could be running in the opposite or not the opposite the the the, the the diametric, the perpendicular, running perpendicular, is that right? Sideways, laterally from. Mm. It's whether you want to tether to connect or whether they're running away from each other is the distinction well, with that. Well, but anyway. they, don't, they, they would effectively be parallel. They don't, they can, they can weave. It's as though it's not the opposite. It's not going the opposite direction. It's going parallel to it or, or laterally to it. And I guess for me, I suppose I'm more interested in jumping jumping laterally if you like through tonal possibilities rather than to lock on to a perhaps one one tonal core and then progress a narrative from there if i had to choose if i had to choose i would rather move through different forms of tone which i take from uh, which i take as existing from in a range from the mechanical to the to the setting fluff levels um, and I would want to move through all of those that would be my preference but of course you can always say that a narrative emerges from that and um, characters grow and develop and for some people that's a kind of a narrative thing whereas I perhaps would say that's maybe more of a, a tonal thing um, so, so I'm slightly lost in the metaphor, but I want to give some example of the way I think of it to see if yeah. we're talking about the same thing. So um, in the late 80s, I think, there was the Middle Earth role-playing game, which came out. And I picked up a couple of books, like uh, anything of, of this era, I never could get everything. But I got a couple of books that, through the visual imagery and elements of reading the rules and a variety of different things... Mm-hmm. I came to what the tone of this game was, and I loved the tone of the game because it enabled me to explore a somewhat beloved text uh, in a completely different direction. And the rule system was secondary to this emotional connection that I had looking through at the pictures and some of the rules and some of the, you know, and it just, it put my mind in a different direction. So how, but how different was that to what you already knew of Tolkien, what you'd already seen? Oh, completely different. No, 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 no. No, this was actually really quite intimate. I never felt intimately connected with Tolkien, certainly as I, you know, blistered through it and, you know, the, the reading process of this kind of stuff. But I realized it was a, a nerd treatise that I just ha- had to go through. It's like a baptism by fire that, you know, mm-hmm. all nerds have to attain. And so I went through it with that philosophy, but it was the subtleties and the nuances, particularly of the Hobbit interactions, which obviously were in the original Tolkien, but that I realized was that the, the hobbits were actually a metaphor for kind of every man. And I've had this periodically as I wander through New Zealand and actually find hobbiton as a thing. And I realized that basically it's just 
the best aspects of you know rural England or Germany or France or kind of made more quaint. But I think the nature of the Hobbits as being incredibly fragile uh, in the setting, not wanting to necessarily fully arm or armor or this kind of stuff, and that fragility being a prerequisite for the way in which they not only took on the universe but also became really critical kind of party, uh, adventurer party partners. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that element, which is so clear to probably a majority of people when they read Tolkien, but to me required this rule set to kind of spin Mm -hmm. off in this different direction. And a large part of it was the artwork, this kind of intimacy Mm -hmm. of, you know, Hobbit's fishing and Hobbit's smoking fish and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But (laughs) part of it was perfectly captured by the fact that this rule system decided to focus on that aspect of this thing. Obviously, wild, crazy spiders, dragons, eyes of terror and doom and all this kind of stuff as well. Mm -hmm. But took to just exploring that particular aspect. And this rule system did it for a variety of different elements of of the Tolkien uh, mythology. So I think tone for me is kind of grounded in this emotion, which makes it really difficult to actually describe in small sentences. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that is the sticky element of a lot of these games, which actually make them kind of beloved games in one sense, but also then create uh, an environment where, when like-minded folk get together to play these games, they're in fact looking to synthesize this tone in a kind of community. Mm-hmm. And this is mm-hmm. actually incredibly important when creating rule systems. Mm-hmm. Am I describing this correctly? By your perspective, too. Yeah, I think. I mean, I mean, I don't. I just certainly don't think you're not saying anything wrong, as far as I'm concerned. What What it makes me think of there is that I think um, in this gaming community, basically, you have to you have to like nonfiction as well as fiction because mm. the rule books are large part nonfiction, mm. um, and of course, at the most extreme end, we've got rules explanations. And so on, you know, and and character sheets are like forms, and uh, you know all of the maths and stuff that can can we can get into with games and the kind of lists and so on. They come up quite a lot. So these are all even if. So then, what did I want to get to? I think that the setting of a game also belongs partly to the non-fiction mindset because it's not fictional in in the sense of uh, of reading a book um we might get bits of bits of fluff prose texts fictional short story type of text but those surprisingly are um i i i would think don't always gel um with people or they might seem a bit more out of the way whereas reading about setting a fictional setting presented in a non-fictional way uh, where you have stats for things or maps for things, traditions, so on and so on. And so on. that, that obviously appeals to people a great deal. Um, so I think maybe this, this tone, tone and setting has a lot to do with this mid ground, this, this balancing act between fictional and non-fictional modes. And that of course correlates, I think, very clearly with the, the the table talk and the game world. Um, and, and as we've talked about before, 
that we're always shifting ever so slightly between those two things. For me, the energy is in that oscillation between players and characters, fictions and play. Um, so for me, metagaming is not an issue at all. There's no problem. And in terms of League of Eternal Guardians, I deliberately made it a feature that they have tele- telepathic communication. Mm. Just to just to completely embed in the setting, in the world, the fact that people are allowed to talk to each other and confer. Because you, it's, it's, it's ridiculous when you're playing a game to have secret information most of the time. So I think that is significant. We're gonna, I think we're gonna, we're gonna talk a little bit about illustration, aren't we? So I'll just, an, an imagery, I'll come, I'll park that for a moment because mm. what I, what I did want to say is that with League of Eternal Guardians, I am, I am trying to keep the, the canonical world the canonical setting as minimal as possible. And I'm trying to uh, make the premise as evocative and multifaceted as possible in the most condensed ways. Well, the canonical setting changes, right? That's the, that's the definition of the game almost is that you take yes. a similar group of players, yeah. throw them in a completely different setting and then see what comes out of that basically. And and so, for example, if we if we you know take advantage of string theory types of <laughs> ideas, um, you know something that you and I could something that you and I could events events that you and I could influence in a particular game could could be completely different in another game. And again, you know, with other players, there's no there's no there's no linear chronology the whole so so the 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 evils that are always trying to corrupt every every dimension are doing so at different points in the continuum so events in the future will open up a new weak point in the past which the the uh the eldritch evils will take advantage of which means that the guardians need to go back to that point um, in that particular dimension. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's no limit to all of that fun. And I guess that is also an aspect of the tone of the game. I want it to feel accessible in all sorts of different ways. I w- so it all uses D6. Mm. Um, it, it's designed to let people basically do what they want whilst still having um a, a a mechanical skeleton that will that will serve serve its purpose well so i want people to be able to say can i do this and the answer is yes give me a role or you know that kind of thing let's talk a little bit about illustration and i'll mm-hmm. i'll frame it in terms of my current experiences mm-hmm. You and I have, through our conversations, have perpetuated a bit of a lie, which I have to apologise. I think most of the listeners to this podcast already know where I might be going with this. But I had long had this kind of mythical relationship with a rule system that I wrote when I was, and now I've actually got the dates in front of me, when I was, you know, 9 through to 12, the uh, Britannia rule system where Mm -hmm. uh, I referred back to it as long lost and what have you. Mm -hmm. Through the 
process of moving here to Las Vegas, where I'm now talking to you from, I found the rule system and was, again, completely mind-blown by the hundreds, well, tens to hundreds of pages of cursively written script in my own childlike hand Mm -hmm. describing an environment to an amazing level of detail in order to create, going against the previously positive minimalist discussion of rules, Mm -hmm. um, to create an environment which I thought was incredibly, well, which carried on and was evocative for many years. I mean, I played it socially probably till I was at least 16, maybe with some rules inflections and a few changes, Mm -hmm. but still Mm -hmm. this was a rule system that I really felt very passionately about and having been distanced from it for such a long period of time it had developed its own mythology anyway Mm -hmm. found the book went back through it working with an artist who presented um, themselves to me i'm I'm intentionally being rather cryptic associated with this because Mm -hmm. none of the parties have have agreed to go public until we actually launch this thing in Mm -hmm. some formal setting Mm -hmm. i presented very minimal setting information to the artist and had the artist create now tens of illustrations associated mm-hmm. with their particular perspective on this environment. And through that, very early on came mythology, which is the artist's own particular interest, not just Nordic and, and Irish and, you know, mainland UK mythology, but a mm-hmm. variety of different textures that I had some degree of intimacy with as well. Now, to be frank, the Britannia rule system never had any true magic. In fact, it had more mm-hmm. kind of psychomagic properties where... You know, it was agreed upon that something magic had happened, even though it probably was just something perfectly normal that had mm-hmm. had minimal influence, which is one of the things I wanted to add to alluvial planes specifically, mm. and we kind of had in some kind of discourse. Anyway, mm. we now have a mythology in addition to this rule system based purely on artistic creation. And then obviously coming back to me and then me writing text associated with it. So there's a, now an increasing volume of, as you described, this kind of fiction slash nonfiction, um, where it's pure fiction, mm-hmm. but actually defines elements in the game. And the role that illustrations provide, I have sought out illustrators at various times in my life. Probably the first two or three serious girlfriends I had were all illustrators. It's a fundamental sense and I like nothing more. Than, <laughs> I'm serious. I like sitting yeah. down with them, talking with them. And the nature of our kind of intimacy was also framed by them during these amazingly elaborate pictures. Mm-hmm. My simulation software in particular, the <laughs> now married to my wife, the face of the ape, which has been so iconic for so many years, actually comes from one of these ex-girlfriends. Mm-hmm. So the face of the ape was one of the things that, you know, my wife has always looked at, like, maybe we can change this at some stage. But seriously, <laughs> my relationship with illustrators has always been magical. Like, really, I when it happens in my life, I'm like... Ah, I've got to cultivate this as best as possible. And usually it ends in tears, hence the, the previous relationships associated with this. But I think what fascinates me is that I, and part of this is early childhood, like I was thrust into learning instruments and stuff where I probably if I had a pen and paper, I would be a, a drawer, but I'm not a drawer. So, but this element of magic and also how in my own experience with this rule system, and might I say the rule system that I'm creating, is not not even really tangentially based on the old Britannia rule system, aside from the setting itself and the kind of magic in the setting. But, can, I mean, you've had a similar experience, maybe not as um, laboured um, as I've had with regards to illustration and its impact on, on what you're doing. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about your experience? Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, me, I, I've, I guess I always wanted to be an artist, and I got into filmmaking... 
uh, as you know, as for study, and and then got into academia. So I'm I'm like a I'm like an un, undeveloped artist, I suppose. Quite often, I've exhibited things and I've made films and uh, so on. So so it's not. Uh, it's not that I that I don't or I haven't done those kinds of things, but when it you know what we're talking about here is working with people who are illustrators who are you know amazing. They have they have a relationship with mark making which perhaps you and I have closer with writing or something like that, or other people with other things or whatever. So for me, for me at the moment, one of one of the mo- one of the you know really wonderful thing in my life is my collaboration with David Sermon, who is a fine artist, an illustrator, and who I've known for uh, maybe that's who you were referring to before, but who I've Sorry. known for more than half of my life, and um, you could say that that started with a with an idea I had for a for a short film. Uh, back when we were students, and David drew uh, drew a couple of images for that, and you know his his work is just mind blowing, and he we've you know we've always we've always been in touch even when he was in Australia, um, and even now as I'm in Germany, but and, and more recently I guess I guess we've both got back into role play gaming. And board gaming to a to a degree, but so he he plays he plays D and D he GMs D and D, and so so the, the the our friendship and the collaboration has really uh, taken another fantastic step, and so 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 David is working on alluvial planes with you and with Spencer and me that's the team and David is also illustrating League of Eternal Guardians and I suppose for the big discussion I would refer people to the last couple of episodes in on my podcast about tone partly because because his work did trigger that off and so in a nutshell seeing the images that David started to produce for League of Eternal Guardians showed me aspects of the game or the tone of the game that I had been a little bit blind to namely namely that it is a humorous a humorous game um, I was going to use words like knockabout because in some ways it is but but I don't want to associate I don't want to say that it's superficial or light or something like that it's minimalist and it's humorous and hopefully grisly at times. But David's pictures, drawings really did did start to to make me more aware of what actually happens at the table. And that's already something that I'm that I that I try and be quite aware of. So I think that's why it probably leaped up at me. And because he his pictures were inspired by listening to the actual play of League of Eternal Guardians, which listeners can find on Grizzly Peaks Radio, um, Eldritch Organ One, League of Eternal Guardians. So that so his work came directly from, if you like, the the recorded material. So not the rules, but the gameplay. And and I think that's great. I think that's great. Now of course that's different. That's a different setup to what you're talking about with Britannia, where you've 
you've been deliberately you've you've kept the the your background information deliberately scant and you've waited to see what uh what the artists generate for for me all of this points to the fact that it's a really great opportunity to for for groups of individuals to to express themselves in their own ways and to kind of hold those contributions up as mirrors to each other and to find interesting ways of working and to produce things that cohere um and this may be in a slightly you know commercial sense in the in the healthy sense of that that word to things that cohere in in a in a way that reflects those creators without necessarily anyone who engages with it feeling like they've really got a piece of of the artist's intention because i don't completely i don't completely subscribe to that kind of idea i guess i guess with alluvial plains and with league of eternal guardians for me i am my motivation is um to see systems and settings emerge that that appeal to me and from there to to work with other people who have similar kinds of interests and for that to grow on and grow on so i what am i saying i'm saying that the the offer of say league of eternal guardians would would hopefully be if you like accurate or sincere and that would be enough or that is enough i hope to uh to to appeal to certain people and for them to feel that they can pick it up and do what they want they you know what what their vision of it would be to play it how they want to play it well let me set my watch to 5 months time uh, yep. i plan on speaking again hopefully maybe definitely maybe hopefully uh, there will be certain changes in my life by that time. I mean, even moving has has been a bit of a change, but hopefully I'll have mm. other other things to discuss as well. But uh, it's been Indeed. an absolute pleasure, as always, Barney. And I think this um, this aloofness that I find in uh, in listening to your podcast is yeah. primarily just setting topics for when we talk next. Yeah, I mean, it's really not intentional. It's it's just life happening. Mm. <laughs> I think that life makes one aloof. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah, look forward to consuming more of your podcasts and hopefully you'll consume some of mine as well. Indeed, always. Um, thank you ever so much for having me on again.